Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 10. Conquest in Gaul, Chaos in Rome. Last week, we examined Julius Caesar's rise to the consulship and alliance with Pompey Magnus and Crassus. With their combined power and influence, they could pass laws through the people that were denied to them by the Senate, led by senators like Cato the Younger. While things were going well for them in this capacity, they were not immune from criticism for their actions. Still, by the end of the year, Caesar was given a five-year governorship of three provinces, and he left Rome for Transalpine Gaul, where 300,000 migrating Helvetii were going to be passing through the province. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, what was Rome's philosophy of conquering territory, and why did non-Romans eventually stop fighting Roman conquest? As a content warning, there is mention of sexual assault this episode. I would also like to say this is the darkest episode of the series yet, and chapters 10, 13, and 19 are likely going to be the darkest episodes of the series as a whole. You guys know by now that I try to have some levity in my voice as I tell this story and try to add some jokes and insert media to help us relate to this 2,000-year-old story. With that said, for this very dark episode, any enthusiasm you may hear in my voice in regards to the conquest of Gaul and the war crimes that Caesar and his men commit on the tribes people there is for a narrative storytelling purpose, like I'm a super enthusiastic Roman reporting this. You guys are hearing about this in the same way that Romans would have heard about this uh, back in their day. Romans were super excited and pumped that Caesar was out conquering new lands for them. What we call war crimes today was super exciting for the Romans. This is really our first and last time we're really going to focus in depth on how Romans conquered other people. There are three kinds of jokes this episode when it comes to the conquest of Gaul. One satirizes the Roman perspective and pokes fun at their love of violence, when in all reality, violence is not a good thing. The other two types of jokes are just jokes from the Roman perspective, which is similarly used in a satirical way, and from the Gallic perspective, with at least one instance of that. However, none of my lightheartedness and jokes is to discount the suffering of people even 2,000 years ago. Be kind to others, and strive to make a more peaceful world. You'll recall from last episode that Caesar gave up his right to triumph for victories in Spain so that he could run for consul, betting it would be more lucrative in the long run to become consul now, and that he may win back the opportunity to triumph as a governor after his consulship. Ever the opportunist, the 300,000 Helvetii migrating near his province of Transalpine Gaul gave him the perfect pretext to win glory, acclaim, and wealth. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. We are going to vastly simplify the eight years of Caesar's Gallic campaigns. While very important to the expansion of Caesar's Octoritas, we're going to blitz through the major highlights. To summarize this beginning action, the Helveti migration gave Caesar a reason to expand outside his province of Transalpine Gaul into Gaul outside Roman territory. In other words, Caesar used the Helvetii migration from Gaul into his territory as an excuse to conquer Gaul outside of his territory. Caesar justified his conquest and expansion into Gaul to protect his allies from encroachment. 
Caesar also knew if he was successful in his conquest, he would be very rich and very celebrated, like Pompey Magnus for his eastern conquests. To give a mental map of the situation, Transalpine Gaul was southern France, where Caesar was supposed to be. Gaul was essentially the rest of modern France and countries like Belgium, Luxembourg, and a bit of Germany west of the Rhine River. Gaul was much larger than the Roman province of Transalpine Gaul and Cisalpine Gaul, made up of individual tribes with some ethnic connections amongst each other. Rome didn't control Gaul, but the Republic had some influence and were allied to and traded with some of the tribes in the larger region. Maps of this region will be posted at DOTRRPod on Twitter. Caesar pushed the Helvetii back from whence they came through violence and war and took many slaves to be sold for profit. Caesar estimated that of the 368,000 Helvetii migrating, only 110,000 returned to their homeland. It's really impossible to know the precise numbers as estimating the enemy was difficult and Caesar was probably exaggerating to play up his victory, but it's fair to say that significantly less Helvetii left Gaul than had arrived dead by Roman violence, or enslaved by the Romans. Okay, then. <laughs> that seems really dark now. In the same year as defeating the Helvetii, Caesar also defeated the German king Ariovistus, who was crossing the Rhine River with German tribes encroaching into Gaul. Through another great military campaign, Caesar expelled King Ariovistus from Gaul and back across the Rhine to German territories. Again, in his wars, Caesar savaged German tribes and took slaves. The first year begins a pattern of Caesar's occupation of Gaul. Crisis after crisis emerged that threatened Caesar's Gallic allies and Roman influence in the region. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Of course, Caesar was looking for any excuse to conquer Gallic tribes. The more enemies he killed and conquered, the more he demonstrated his value to the Republic and to voters. Caesar would argue he had the legal authority to quell these crises and neutralize threats. For every non-allied Gallic tribe Caesar defeated, Rome was one step closer to dominating the region. The Helvetian and King Ariovistus were not his only challengers. Caesar also campaigned against the Belgae people around modern Belgium. Of course, war doesn't pause politics, and politics in Rome at this time were becoming more radical than traditional. While powerful, the triumvirs Pompey Magnus, Crassus, and Caesar did not have a monopoly on political power. In Rome, violence by mobs was becoming more common, and while Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar won the battle that was accomplishing their short-term goals, the war for political control against conservative, established, optimate senators like Cato the Younger still raged. For Pompey and Crassus in Rome, their new consuls were not as assertive or bold as Caesar. While Caesar was in Gaul, and certainly keeping up with events, he was only a distant influence to Rome, and was not a soldier on the political battlefield like he had been. The reckless Claudius was elected as tribune of the plebs only because Caesar and Pompey transferred him from his patrician family of the distinguished Claudii to a plebeian family. However, Claudius still retained his familial relations to the Claudii and now as tribune looked to enact populist measures like the Gracchi before him. One such bill was getting the people within Rome free corn. Claudius was also keen to punish Cicero for his execution of the Catiline conspirators. Cicero was not as supported by his fellow senators as he hoped to be, and the Claudii family held influence over many. 
Thus, Cicero was exiled from Rome around the same time Caesar left to fight the Helvetii in 58 BCE. A mob would burn down Cicero's house. Getting rid of Rome's best order, Claudius moved to get rid of Mr. Moral Authority, Cato the Younger. As such, Cato was assigned to oversee the annexation of Cyprus that would take him out of Rome. Cato probably knew he was being used, but took the honor anyway, ignoring that tribunes of the plebs had no authority in foreign policy like annexation. Claudius also made insults to Pompey and questioned the legitimacy of Caesar's consulship and the laws he made. Caesar and Pompey were certainly very caught off guard by this, as they were the ones that allowed Claudius to be a tribune of the plebs in the first place. I've made a huge, made a huge mistake. mistake. Pompey tried to recall Cicero from exile, but this was shot down. Pompey the Great was intimidated into staying in his own house, fearing he would be assassinated by Claudius's men. <laughs> I'm in danger! As 58 BC ended, Claudius was no longer tribune, but still held a lot of influence, with a gang of followers devoted to him, willing to intimidate, injure, and kill Claudius's enemies. To combat Claudius, Pompey backed the new tribunes, Titus Annius Milo and Publius Cestius, who had their own gangs. Button men and enforcers commonly clashed in gang warfare, death and injury more frequent than it had been in Caesar's consulship. Pompey toured Italy, raising support for the recall of Cicero, and with Claudius out of office, a second attempt to recall the Great Order finally succeeded. For 56 BCE, Pompey was given formal power again, with authority to solve Rome's grain crisis, as Claudius' system was not working out as effectively as hoped. Of course, this same year, Claudius was an aedile and judge, powers he used to go after his rival Milo, the tribune whose gangs had fought Claudius's gangs. Pompey and Cicero defended Milo, and during the trial, Claudius incited Pompey's fear that his frenemy Crassus was conspiring against him, supporting Claudius. In short, the situation was getting out of the triumvir's hands. Pompey had no funds from the treasury to fix Rome's grain problem he was assigned to, and there was talk of Caesar's land bills that had helped him out would be repealed to get money back. There was also talk of recalling Caesar from his governorship, as his continued victories against Gallic tribes indicated Gaul was at peace, and governorship should be turned over to his enemy, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus someone who had questioned the validity of Caesar's actions as consul. Neither Pompey nor Crassus came out to oppose these ideas. The triumvirate itself seemed about to dissolve, which would likely lead to the three powerful men fighting each other's interests. Caesar summoned Crassus and Pompey to Lucca, a city in his province of Cisalpine Gaul. There, the triumvirs renewed their vows to each other. Much like the circumstances that brought them together in the first place, Caesar suggested an outcome wherein they could all work together to achieve their individual interests. That being, Pompey and Crassus run for the consulship of 55 BCE to stabilize Rome in their favor and ensuring governorships and therefore armies for themselves. If things went really bad, Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar would all legally have armies, could pull a sola and take control of the Republic with brute force. <laughs> <laughs> yes, excellent! <laughs> <laughs> they could also snag a hefty five-year command for themselves, like Caesar did. Pompey and Crassus would also work to extend Caesar's command by another five years, 
For Crassus, with a province and an army, he would be able to win military glory for himself, as his only military claim to fame was victory in the Slave Rebellion. That was now looking pretty small compared to Caesar's victories in Gaul, and much less than Pompey's three triumphs. Pompey had less to gain, but still, had he broken from alliance with Crassus and Caesar, Pompey would still not be accepted by established elites like Cato, fighting them and Claudius without any hope of support from Crassus and Caesar. Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus all had something to gain in their unity. The thruple, I mean triumvirate, stayed together. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. The triumvirate reunited, Crassus and Pompey returned to Rome, and secured another five years for Caesar's command, as well as taking the heat off his land laws. Furthermore, with a little violence and intimidation on election day, Crassus and Pompey were elected consuls for 58 BCE. Cato and Claudius weren't going to be magistrates and had no formal power. The triumvirs in control again, they could again try to mold the Republic to their advantage, stabilizing the Republic in their favor. For Pompey's part, he gave Rome its first stone theater to entertain the people. Are you not entertained? Caesar had no grand conquests in 56 BCE, allowing him to focus on Roman politics from afar. For 55 BCE, he had a much grander idea in mind. Caesar made an expedition across the English Channel to the fabled Britain, where no Roman army had ever stepped foot. The next year, in 54 BCE, Caesar would take a much larger force and have a longer occupation. Both of Caesar's forays into Britain had little lasting impact on Romans or the Britons themselves. Caesar did not gain great riches, and in fact, Caesar easily could have been killed and stranded on Britain both times. However, Caesar made it out with the majority of his men. It would still be almost 100 years before Romans would actually settle Britain. However, in going to Britain, Caesar basically touched down on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He brought Romans into a brave new world and increased his celebrity to the vast majority of Romans, fascinated by the mysterious land that they had only ever heard tall tales about. After the British invasions, a young officer joined Caesar's military. Marcus Antonius, or as we know him today, Mark Antony, came from a well-connected aristocratic family. Antony's family had fallen on hard times recently. His grandfather was killed in Sulla's prescriptions. His father died failing to clean up the pirates in the Mediterranean, which Pompey later had to fix. His stepfather was a Catiline conspirator, recently executed by Cicero in the final act. Still, Mark Antony was an aristocrat, and doors opened for him, even if he was massively in debt like Caesar. Mark Antony had previously served in the East, fought in Judea and in Egypt, and was known for his personal bravery and battle. In 54 BCE, while Caesar was in Britain, sobering news arrived from Rome. His daughter Julia died giving birth to Pompey's child, and Caesar's mother Aurelia also passed away. Caesar no doubt grieved the loss of his only child and his only parent for half his life. Caesar had not seen either of them in four years. He tried to arrange the marriage of his niece Octavia to Pompey, but Pompey declined. No doubt Pompey grieved as well, the passing of his loving wife, along with their child. While Pompey's grief was probably real, 
there was a political aspect to his decline of Octavia as well. Even if he was still in an alliance with Caesar, Pompey kept his options open. There may be an opportunity for another political marriage to another politician's daughter. Pompey gave Julia a lavish public funeral as Caesar had done for his Aunt Julia and his first wife Cornelia, and Caesar vowed to honor his daughter with great gladiatorial games. One of the Belgae tribes Caesar recently conquered, the Eburones, launched a surprise attack on a division of Caesar's army in the winter as 54 BCE came to a close. War and battle was very uncommon for winter as it was logistically impossible to sustain with snow impeding movement. So, the attack was all the more surprising, and the Eburones wiped out one and a half legions of men. Other tribes were moving against other divisions of Roman forces, and Caesar's subordinate legates were scrambling to defend themselves. It was a week before Caesar realized anything was wrong, at which point he was able to stabilize the situation, yet still had a rebellion on his hands. Caesar blamed the initial defeat by the Eburones on a subordinate, but as ultimate authority rested with him, it was Caesar's defeat. Furthermore, the Eburones proved to Gaul that Caesar was not invincible. Caesar was in hostile territory and couldn't let actions against him go unpunished. Caesar and his angry army would wage Vestasio. Not only would they wage war against the rebel warriors, but consume their crops, burn their homes, and kill and enslave their families. They're like animals. And I slaughtered them like animals. I hate them! It was a no-holds-bar onslaught on any Gallic community that didn't immediately capitulate to him, and he spread fire and blood across Gaul to bring it under his boot. Much of Rome's entertainment, like gladiators and beast fights, were based in violence. Stories of Caesar's devastation upon Gauls would serve him well to the average Roman voter, who loved hearing stories of hostiles humbled by Rome. It would only encourage Caesar to inflict more violence upon the Gauls. Why the need for so much gruesome graphic violence? Why not let us imagine Because it's so it? much fun, Jan! Get it! 53 BCE began with bad news for Caesar, almost like karma. Crassus had secured a five-year command in the province of Syria, which he used to launch a war against the Parthians. The Kingdom of Parthia was east of Roman territory and the only power comparable to Rome. While Caesar expanded into Gaul under the pretext of defending his allies, Crassus had no good reason to wage war on Parthia other than to win prestige and glory for himself to match Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar. Despite Crassus pursuing conquests entirely out of self-interest, the Republic did not have the power to stop him. Rome was losing control over its foreign policy. Gathering his strength in 54 BCE, Crassus advanced into Parthia in 53 BCE. Their first and last battle was at Carrhae, the Roman infantry army against the cavalry-based army of the Parthians. Romans weren't defeated, but sustained very heavy casualties in enemy territory. Crassus and his army retreated to friendly territory in the night, yet the Parthian cavalry quickly caught up with them, nearly killing them all. Crassus was killed when negotiating with the Parthians. According to some historians slash legend, the Parthians were aware of Crassus's wealth and how much he liked gold. As the story goes, they killed Crassus by pouring molten gold down his throat.
with the death of Crassus and the annihilation of most of his army, the eagles of his legions were lost. Eagle. The eagles were a mark of honor and prestige to the Roman legion, and now Roman eagles were captured by a foreign enemy, a devastating loss on Roman pride. Crassus had so much power concentrated within him, with so much wealth and so many senators under his influence, it was inevitable that the balance of power would shift in the Republic. The survivors of Crassus's vanity project were led back to Roman territory by Gaius Cassius Longinus. As 53 BCE came to a close, Caesar's attentions were not focused on Gaul, but towards Rome, which again was falling closer to chaos. Mark Antony had actually been in Rome to watch it all unfold, as he was running to be one of 20 quaestors. Crassus was dead, and Pompey was serving as governor of Spain. Pompey wasn't actually in Spain, and was just outside Rome. Pompey had subordinate legates running Spain, but couldn't enter Rome itself without laying down his command. Bribery was rampant in Rome, and fighting had continued between Claudius's and Milo's gangs. Violence prevented elections, and 52 BCE would open without any consuls or praetors, the senior leaders of the Republic. Fighting would continue, and wildcard Claudius would finally be killed, which was a weight off of Pompey's shoulders. I love what I'm seeing! I love what's going on right now! At Claudius's cremation, a pyre was built in the Senate House, which burned to the ground. There was talk of making Pompey dictator to restore order, but instead, Pompey was made the year's only consul and brought troops into Rome to restore order. Pompey as sole consul was a gross violation of tradition. That is disgusting. But the Republic faced an extraordinary crisis, so it bent the rules so Pompey Magnus could lead the Republic through it. Give it to me now! Pompey's troops restored order and brought justice in the courts, exiling prominent supporters of Claudius and his enemy Milo himself. Caesar watched all of this unfold from Cisalpine Gaul, farther from Gaul, where he had legates holding down the fort. Antony was easily elected based on his aristocratic heritage and Caesar's recommendation. In this election, he saw the Republic's institutions crumbling before his eyes. He saw how far bribery and intimidation got a politician, and how it was only beat by greater bribery and greater intimidation, or even violence. Caesar recalled the quaestor Antony to his service. As Caesar's attentions were drawn towards Rome, the Gauls were planning to make a final stand against Roman rule. The tribes were coming to realize that Caesar and the Romans were here to stay. Caesar took his army outside his province of Transalpine Gaul into Gaul under the pretext to help Roman allied tribes. Throughout the years, Caesar's powerful army had been beating down any opposition to it, subjugating more tribes to Roman influence. Caesar had savaged and enslaved peoples of many tribes and had no qualm executing leaders in allied tribes who were fracturous to his rule. Gallic leaders were at a critical point. They could accept life was better under Roman influence and that to fight them was futile. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will service us. Or they can make a stand against it. At first, enemy tribes to Rome conspired to expel Caesar from their land. However, the conspiracy grew 
to include tribes allied to the Romans, led by leaders the Romans had propped up. Out of self-interest, many Gallic leaders were deciding that Roman domination would lose them more than they gained, becoming increasingly dependent on Roman support to rule their tribes and fundamentally changing their tribal political order. The rebellion began by the Carnute tribe, who massacred Roman traders in the town of Cenobum. The Gauls united under Vercingetorix, a skilled commander unlike any the Gauls had produced previously, who paid great attention to tribal discipline and supplying their large force. Vercingetorix began by attacking the allied tribes to Rome. Caesar's legates offered little aid, and by the time they realized there was a concerted rebellion on their hands, Roman allied tribes were switching sides to Vercingetorix. When Caesar finally caught word, he was hundreds of miles away from his main army in Gaul, with friendly tribes breaking their alliances and joining up with Vercingetorix. We have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, and flat out deceived. Caesar was able to reach his army and counterattacked three of Vercingetorix's allies. Still, Vercingetorix stayed close on Caesar, attacking small segments of his army and his foragers to deprive him of supplies. Furthermore, Vercingetorix ordered the Gauls to burn their own grain to ensure stress on Roman supplies. As Caesar had proven for the last six years, even with less forces, he and his soldiers were formidable in open battle. By starving them and weakening them, the Gauls could take the advantage. Caesar was able to make it to the town of Avericum, easing his supply problem and allowing the Romans to take out their frustrations on the Gauls inside, running riots inside the town once they had taken it. After his victory, Caesar moved on Vercingetorix at the fortified town of Gergovia. Caesar's attack was defeated and Caesar was forced to retreat. By this point, Caesar's odds were not looking good. He had lost nearly all of his allies to Vercingetorix, and with one more defeat, he and his army would never return to Gaul. Vercingetorix was convinced by his allies to keep attacking Caesar while he was down and drop him like a boxer in the 12th round. Ready? Let's do it. Drop that sucker. Vercingetorix moved a strike force close to Caesar to keep up the attack. This only brought a greater Gallic force to Caesar that he fended off routed, pursued, and trapped, and surrounded in the town of Elysia. Vercingetorix himself was now trapped by Caesar. Just as it was going so right for Vercingetorix, it went so wrong. Yeah. Bingo! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh. In a feat of engineering, Caesar's army constructed a wall around Elysia to starve out the Gauls. Before Caesar's wall was complete, Vercingetorix was able to send out cavalry to notify his allies to raise an army to relieve him. So the Romans built a second wall around the wall they just made, Double time. where they would fight two armies from two sides. It took time to raise an army of a size that could defeat Caesar's. As supplies were running low in Elysia, Vercingetorix expelled the elderly, the women, and the children as he could not feed them and his army. If Vercingetorix thought Caesar would allow the civilians to pass, he didn't. Caesar did not open his gates to the expelled Gauls, and Vercingetorix did not open his gates back up. The elderly, women, and children were left to starve in the field between the two ruthless leaders. That seems really dark now. Vercingetorix's relief army arrived, which launched attacks on Caesar's outer walls as Vercingetorix launched attacks from the inner walls. 
The Romans were scrambling in between, fending off the two armies. To the Roman advantage, the two armies couldn't communicate with each other, only desperately struggling individually. After two savage attacks, the relief army was repulsed from Caesar's walls. In these battles, Caesar noted Antony and Gaius Trebonius helped stop the Gauls from overtaking their defenses. The large army on the outer walls didn't have the supplies to sustain itself and dissolved. Inside the walls, Vercingetorix failed to break out and was also low on supplies. Vercingetorix surrendered to Caesar and the rebellion was over, nearly all Gallic tribes submitting to Roman rule. As they had hundreds of times before, Romans conquered a new people with violence and terror. How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? In about eight years, Caesar basically added all of modern France to the Roman Republic, a gigantic piece of territory. During his campaigns, Caesar wrote his commentaries on the Gallic Wars, his account of how his campaign in Gaul was progressing. They were sensational in Rome. Romans loved violence, and this fueled the excitement around Caesar as a conquering general of Rome, who had conquered all around Gaul and even into Britain. Few would have thought Caesar, who started this conquest in his early 40s, would have been such a gifted general. Caesar's extreme cruelty to the Gauls was about on par with what any conquering general of any society would have done in that era. However glorious this was to the Romans, the sobering reality is, Caesar and his army killed many enemy warriors, massacred many civilians, raped many women, and enslaved many men, women, and children. There are a variety of estimates as to the death toll Caesar inflicted on the Gauls, different sources estimating 400,000 to over 1 million Gauls killed in battle, never mind the number of slaves they took. By today's standards, Caesar committed genocide against the Gauls. Caesar's conquest began with four legions, but his wars necessitated more men, and this grew to ten legions. Caesar made ten legions of men wealthier than they had ever been and devoted to him. At times, their confidence in his leadership wavered, but Caesar's charm and rhetoric always won them back and kept them conquering. Many men owed their careers to Caesar, and as a whole, Caesar's ten veteran legions were adept at killing and utterly loyal to him. They would conquer wherever he pointed. Caesar spent the rest of his time in Gaul stamping out the last bits of rebellion, easy pickings compared to Vercingetorix. Caesar himself had become so rich, his debts were no longer a concern. Now he had wealth to spare. In 49 BCE, Caesar wanted to return to Rome and stand for the consulship for 48 BCE. Of course, the only hiccup was that he needed an exemption to stand for the consulship outside Rome. Caesar had to be inside Rome to declare his run for the consulship, but Caesar could not enter Rome as an active general or governor, but only as a civilian. Pompey had faced this issue earlier when he was technically the governor of Spain, but hanging out just outside Rome, he would have liked to have been inside Rome, but could have entered the city without giving up his governorship and the right to possess an army. And Caesar had faced this issue earlier in his career as well, he gave up his right to triumph for his Spanish conquests so that he could run for consul. But the stakes were different now. If Caesar entered Rome as a civilian, his enemies, like Cato the Younger, could prosecute him for the laws he made 10 years ago or say that his war in Gaul was unnecessary, which it was. So, what Caesar wanted was to remain a general and governor so he could not be prosecuted and announce outside Rome that he would run for consul. 
Once he was elected consul, he could walk inside Rome and also be immune from prosecution like a governor. When his term was up, he could walk out as a governor again, totally immune to legal prosecution and others tearing him down. It was the perfect crime, or rather, gaming of the system. And lucky for Caesar, he had an inside man, Pompey Magnus, who could convince the Senate to do this for him. This episode, Caesar brought the entirety of Gaul under Roman rule. He and his army undoubtedly committed thousands of war crimes and inflicted unquantifiable suffering upon the Gauls, but those were the standards of any general, Roman or otherwise, from this era. For all that suffering, Caesar became rich, his ten legions became devoted to him, and the Roman people loved hearing about him and his war stories. Julius Caesar's military genius came as a surprise to Rome, and time and again, he proved himself an adaptable commander who even against the worst odds, always came out on top. Our essential question in this episode was, what is Rome's philosophy of conquering territory, and why did non-Romans eventually stop fighting Roman conquest? Go ahead and pause, and think of your response if you would like. Rome's philosophy of conquest followed a simple principle. Make your enemies understand that it is better to exist under you than to fight you. It was a carrot-and-stick approach. The carrot was living, existing in relative peace, being an ally to Rome who would protect you if you were in trouble. We come to honor that allegiance. You would be linked up to Rome's other allies and Rome's trading networks, and more money would be pumped into your towns and villages, and every so often, exotic goods from all around the Republic would trickle in. The stick was Vestachio. Rome had no qualm committing genocide, brutalizing, enslaving, and killing any men, women, and children who didn't comply to their rule. Yes, you could fight, and yes, you could kill a few Romans or even repel them for some time, but if extraordinary generals like Marius, Sola, Pompey, and now Caesar wanted you, they would break your spirit. You could kneel to Rome now in peace, or you could kneel to Rome over the corpse of your dead family. Okay, that, <laughs> that seems really dark now. Caesar was so brutal to the Gauls, because he had to show the Gallic tribes it was better to tolerate his supremacy than oppose him. It was better to live under Caesar and survive, then fight and die. Next episode, we'll see a bit more of Rome. While Caesar was conquering Gaul, Rome itself was turbulent in these years, but Pompey had some handle on the reins. Even though Crassus and Julia were dead, there was no reason Pompey and Caesar couldn't get along. Caesar finished up in Gaul and eagerly waited for his special exemption, allowing him to run for consul outside Rome so he couldn't be prosecuted for his crimes. How lucky Rome was to have two of its greatest generals living in the same era, much less be allies to each other. How lucky. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube. Death of the Roman Republic's YouTube channel will contain episode highlights, re-listen to favorite clips, and share with friends, and help them discover the show. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. You can follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod, where we share Roman history memes, other educational materials, Roman history memes. I would probably benefit from writing a script for this, but we're halfway through, so why start now? Uh, go follow at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter if you would like. Come for the facts, stay for the fun.
Additionally, there are tons of memes about Rome's Gallic Wars. I'm tweeting out two memes at least per day this week, so definitely check it out at DOTRRPod on Twitter if you'd like. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.